Well, open your personal copy of God's Word to Paul's letter to the church of the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And we've entitled this message, Christian Unity, an Elusive Jewel. Christian Unity, an Elusive Jewel. The psalmist writes in Psalm 133 and verse 1, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And Indeed, how good it is when we can dwell together in unity. You don't have to be around the Church of Jesus Christ for a very long period of time to be able to attest that unity is a somewhat fragile commodity. It is... I think much like the wood veneer that you find on furniture that you purchase from Ikea. It's not particularly thick. It's subject to scratching and gouging and damage and needs to be protected and treated with care. And I think Christian unity is much like that. As we noted last time, finishing up chapter 3, turning here now in chapter 4 in this letter, that there is a major transition that goes on. This is the hinge point of the book. It moves from chapters 1 through 3 with Paul's treatment of the great doctrines of salvation to chapters 4, 5, and 6, where Paul deals with the duties that are now incumbent upon the follower of Christ. Paul has established for us in chapters 1 through 3 this, the theology underlining the multi-ethnic church, predestined in love by the Father, sin atoned for by the work of the Son, And through the indwelling power of the Spirit made the one new man, the one body of Christ. And Paul now, having established all of that, will begin here in chapter 4 to to sort of tease out the ethical transformation that can and must occur for those who have been united with the Son through faith, adopted as sons of the living God. We are the new humanity. And as a new humanity, we need to live in a new way. And so Paul will address certainly not every single aspect of the new humanity and every single area that must change, but he will lay out for us in five, 4, 5, and 6 general areas that, will, that impact all of us. If not directly, then certainly by application. He will talk about how to live as the new creation of Christ. And so that's really what this is all about. In fact, uh, verse 1 here of chapter 4 is what you might call a topical sentence for the entirety of the balance of the book. It is the big idea. It is the main topic from which the rest of the book flows out. And And you notice that that Paul ties it all in, in verse 1 here, when he talks about, let me just read it, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, 
implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. He ties it into the calling of God. That is the, the predestinating, loving predestination of the Father, whereby we have been united with the Son through adoption, and the work of the Son on our behalf in atonement, and the Spirit's application of that work to us in the creation of that one new man. In light of all of that, the calling with which you have been called, therefore, Paul says, you need to begin to live differently. That's the basic idea. And Paul, notice here, he uses the verb, it's translated for you in the English as walk. Peripateo is the actual Greek verb here, and it's, and it's a metaphor that, that Paul likes and uses. In fact, he uses it 32 times in his writings. He's very partial to the use of the word walk to speak about uh, how one conducts their life. It, it's, it's our lifestyle. It's our conduct. It's, it's how we live is our walk. And a person's walk is, is a result of the decisions that they make. It's the result of the path that they choose. A person's walk is the, is the product of the desires and the passions which drive them. And so Paul uses this term of walk and has used it already in the book to speak about your life. Over in chapter 2, we are first introduced to it in verse 2, where there he describes the walk. He says, uh, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, verse 1, in which you formerly walked. So he's describing the life before Christ. And it was a life given over to sin. It was a life in which we were spiritually dead. That is unresponsive to God. It is a life in which we lived in bondage to the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. That was our walk. That was our life. Those were the passions. Those were the desires. Those were the decisions that drove our life and shaped our life. It was our walk. Paul then, after speaking about our redemption in Christ, through by grace you are saved, through faith, right? And that not of yourselves. He speaks in verse 10 of chapter 2 that this new life is a a life of good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In other words, that our life has been reoriented. We have gone from being bent in on ourselves, twisted, into ourselves, a life of selfishness, if I can say it that way, and to being turned outward for others. It is a life now in which we seek to love and serve other people. Those are the good works that Paul is speaking of here. And so our desires change, our passions change, our decisions change, and in yea, the very character of our life changes because of the work of Christ. And Paul furthermore says here in verse 1, and, and it's based on the, on the tense of the verb, but, but he is speaking there to the Ephesians, and he is saying that, that something has to change for them. He is speaking to them, and he, and he is saying that, that uh, I implore you, right, to, to walk, to live in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In other words, I implore you to stop living as if you do not know Christ, and live as, as the reality that you do. Change. Change is what he's talking about. 
He's speaking to them about it, and by extension, he's speaking to you and I. Our lives have changed, are changing, and need to change in order to come in conformity, in order for our walk to match up to who we are in Christ. We are in the process of becoming who we are in Jesus Christ. And so for every single person here this morning, we have our unique places, our unique areas where our walk needs to come in line with our new status in Christ, to to come into line with the calling with which we have been called. Now, notice specifically that, that Paul... Uh, implores them here to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Furthermore, notice that, that Paul ties his, his plea to them into his own status as a prisoner. Right? Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord. He, he ties this, this, uh, this plea to them into the fact of his own status as as a prisoner of Christ, which is an evidence of his own commitment to Christ and the new life that it has brought to him. For Paul, the new life, the new walk has resulted in imprisonment. He He has followed Christ to that level that it has brought him to prison. And he's saying, in you know, in light of that reality of following Christ, you too need to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. It may call for your imprisonment. It may not call for your imprisonment. But in either case, change is definitely in order. Well, so what does it mean? What does it mean to walk worthy? All right, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. What does it mean to walk worthy? This, this adverb, worthy, axios in the Greek, it, it could be translated suitable. I implore you to walk in a manner that is suitable with the, your calling. It literally, the, this, this word means to, to bring the other beam of the scales up into balance. The idea is equilibrium. To bring it all into into equilibrium, into balance. I urge you, I implore you to bring your life into balance, he would say. To bring your life into equilibrium with what? With the calling that that is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, bring your conduct into balance with the divine calling. Live like who you are. Live like who you are. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying it to them. He's he's speaking to you and I this morning. We need to live like who we really are. Not who we were, who we are. And Paul will address, as we've said, a a number of areas. A number of areas in chapters 4 and following that, that can and must reflect the new status as a disciple of Christ, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first area that Paul will undertake to address here is in verses 2 through 16 of chapter 4, and it is the topic of Christian unity. This is the first place where our lives need to come into equilibrium. We need to come into balance. We need to live in light of the reality of not who we were, but who we are. We need to bring our lives, our decisions, our passions, our desires into balance in the area of Christian unity. 
in the area of Christian unity. So, verses 2 and following. And as I was thinking about these verses and, and how to approach it, I thought I, the best thing for us to do this morning is to just start with an introduction. I want to introduce the topic of Christian unity because there's going to be a lot we need to talk about. There's a lot here for us. And so I just this morning want to introduce the topic to us. And so as we, as we introduce the discussion of unity here, I want, to, I want to set the stage for our future studies. And I want to do it in, in the old Puritan fashion by asking and answering questions. Okay, that's the, the best structure I could find to, to approach this, this very big topic. And so I'm going to pose a question and then seek to answer the question. And in doing so, lay the foundation, the overview, the introduction to the discussion of Christian unity because it is so important. I mean, if you think about it, of all the topics for Paul to address, right, in 4, 5, and 6, he begins with Christian unity. It's not something he addresses at the end. Oh, by the way, after all this, 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 and this, you need to be, you, you know, you need to, to live out your unity. He begins with the unity. Because when we understand unity and we begin to practice Christian unity, then we will understand why the other behaviors and lifestyles that he's going to address in terms of our, of our sexuality and in terms of our marriages and in terms of our relationships to authority and all those kinds of things, they all actually feed out of Christian unity and an understanding of Christian unity. Because we don't live alone. In other words, my sin affects you. It splashes onto you, and yours splashes onto everyone else as well. We are not uh, by ourselves. In fact, we can answer the question, right, that, that, uh, that Cain says, Am I my brother's keeper? The answer to the question is, yes. Yes, you are. And so we are in this together. And our morality, if I can say it that way, our ethics, is a community concern. It's a community concern. And it all is driven out of the reality of Christian unity, that elusive jewel. Elusive jewel. So, we're going to begin here with some questions. And we'll just see how far we get. And the beauty of it is, if I don't finish them all, then we can come back next week and just keep going and... I may just do this whole series in questions, actually. We'll find out about that later. So, first question, here it is. What is unity? What is unity? Because when we talk about unity, I I think it's really necessary to, to define and establish our terms. And the reason that's important is because people have different ideas about what the word means. And, and if they have different ideas about what the word means, they have different ideas about what it looks like. What does Christian unity look like? And so as we begin our studies, it's, it's critical, I think, that we have a basic shared understanding. And so we're going to try to answer this question first. What is unity? Definition. Okay, definition. The word translated here, unity, henotes, is Actually, a very rare word, biblically. It only appears in one other place in the New Testament, and it's over in verse 13 of chapter 4 as well. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. 
Right? So the actual word that's translated here, unity, only appears here in um, uh, verse 3 and in verse 13. It's the only two places it appears. And, uh, and the word could, uh, is greatly, tra- you know, it's a great translation, unity, but it could also be translated oneness. So unity or oneness would be the, the best English translations of this very rare biblical word. I think it's also important to, to sort of differentiate between unity and uniformity. Because I think sometimes that gets confused in people's minds. The difference between unity and uniformity. And so we're going to see here very, very shortly that that unity or oneness is fundamentally a spiritual reality that is brought about through what Paul calls over in chapter 2 and verse 15, the one new man. Christian unity or Christian oneness is fundamentally a spiritual reality. In other words, it's invisible. And it is brought about by the work of the Spirit in the creation of the one new man. And so this, this uh, spiritual reality is, is uh, something that you know, is kind of the opposite of a visual oneness. The visual oneness that is brought about, and this is when I talk about uniformity, the the visual oneness is brought about through membership in the same organizations or attachments to the same temporal allegiances. In other words, our Christian unity is not about the clothing we wear. Christian unity is not about the foods that we eat. Christian unity is not about our entertainment choices. Christian unity is not about voting for the same political candidate. These are not expressions of Christian unity. These are matters, to one degree or another, that are gray matters, meaning that that people have opposing opinions on these things, and we don't need to be united in all of that. Beyond that, Christian unity is not dependent on being part of the same church or even part of the same denomination. None of these things is the expression of Christian unity. So Christian unity is first and foremost invisible. However, however, the reality of the invisible oneness does and can and should produce uh, external expressions of oneness, primarily in a local church body. Primarily in a local church body. So it's an invisible reality that does produce certain changes and realities that can be observed within a local church body. Second question for you. What is the source of unity? What is the source of unity? In other words, where does it come from? This this invisible spiritual reality, where does it come from? Answer, from the indwelling Spirit of God. It comes from the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 3 here in chapter 4. Being diligent to preserve Notice it, the unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit. In other words, it is the Holy Spirit who produces this invisible reality of our spiritual oneness. 
And sort of the key verse, the go-to passage on this is over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I will turn you there. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. This is the key text on the issue of unity. 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 12. Paul writes, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Now here's your text. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Christ is the baptizer. The word baptize means to immerse. Christ is the, is the baptizer. Christ is the one who immerses us into his body. And, it, and he does that uh, through the Spirit. Through the Spirit. We are immersed in one Spirit into the body of Christ. In other words... At the moment of redemption, at the moment we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God took up residence within us and we were immersed into the body of Jesus Christ. And there is only one body, one body of Christ. And we were made part of it. This is the source of our Christian unity. The Spirit came at Pentecost. He came in fulfillment of the promises of the new covenant. And his coming and his ministry and of placing us there into the body of Christ is the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer in John 17. So go ahead and flip back to John 17, verses 22 and 23, where Jesus... In the night of his betrayal, he prays what is known as his high priestly prayer, and he prays for the unity of the church. Prays for the unity of the church. And I want to take you here is because there are some who think this prayer is still unanswered. But I want to show you that this prayer has been answered. It was answered. It was answered at Pentecost in the giving of the Spirit. Jesus says, verse 22, John 17, The glory which you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus is praying for the oneness, for the unity of the church. And that became the reality in the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost by which we are all now immersed into the one body of Jesus Christ. So Jesus' prayer is not waiting fulfillment someday. We don't have to, to work really hard in order to, so that Jesus' prayer doesn't go unanswered. It has been answered. And it has been answered definitively and certainly in the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost. Third. Why is unity so important? Why is unity so important? The discussion moves here with this question. It moves from the inner reality 
of our oneness in Christ to, to the outward expression of that reality in the lives of the people of God. It is so important, and, it, and, it, and Paul here in, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, where he is dealing with ethical behavior, right, the way you're supposed to live, he's dealing with the topic of unity because it's very, very important that we live out the spiritual reality that is ours in Christ. In other words, we need to act towards each other in a way that illustrates the theological reality of our oneness in Christ. Let me say it this way. Unity demonstrates the life-changing power of the gospel. Visible unity, outward unity, demonstrates the life-changing power of the gospel. To use the words of James, show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. It is our, the outward expression of our unity, and we'll tease this out as we go here, that is the, it is the visible expression of the inward reality of the Spirit's work. For example, Jesus says in John chapter 13 and verse 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. So, so as a group of Christians love on each other, they demonstrate to the world the reality of the work of Christ on their behalf. It is the tangible outward expression of the inner change. We see in Acts chapter 2, And verse 46, that there, when the Spirit has come at Pentecost and the church has been birthed, and 3,000 souls were saved that day, and the church begins, it says there in verse 46 that day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. In other words, they were sharing with one another. There was an expression of unity that showed itself in a common sharing among the believers. This is the outward, tangible display of the inner work of the Spirit. Romans chapter 12 and verse 16 gives us another gospel display through Christian unity. Romans chapter 12 and verse 16. Paul writes here, and and remember, 1 through 11, chapters 1 through 11 is his presentation of the gospel. It's his most comprehensive presentation of the gospel. Beginning in chapter 12, he begins to talk about how to live, right? Therefore, I urge you, right, by the mercies of God, not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And he goes on to lay out what that renewed mind looks like, what the new life in Christ looks like. And so here, chapter 12, again, pretty early on, talks about unity. Verse 16, be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. In other words, be impartial towards others. Be impartial. The, the, the expression, the demonstration of the, of, the, of the work of the gospel is a Christian unity that is not partial one to another within the body of Christ. Said another way, those who are successful on a worldly basis, right, don't get the best seats in the house. 
to, to you know, speak the way James would speak about such things, is that we are not to be partial in that way, nor are we to elevate our personal preferences to a place where we begin to judge or censure other believers within the body. These are attacks on Christian unity. Chapter 15, verses 5 and 6, we see the same thing again. And in this case, it's, it's in the context of food choices, right? Some people eat meat, some people don't eat meat, some people drink wine, some people don't drink wine. And they're, within the body here, the church at Rome, there's all kinds of problems going on because of that. But Paul summarizes uh, after speaking to it all here in, in, verse, in chapter 14 and following, but here he summarizes in verses 5 and 6. He says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, no partiality. We are to come together to be of the same mind. We are to live out the Christian unity wrought by the gospel through the Spirit. A few more. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. By the way, it's just good to be reminded that unity is not an isolated uh, doctrine here in in, uh, Ephesians. It's all over the New Testament. Very, very important. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, he writes there, the church at Philippi, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In other words, that the unity that has been made certain in the spirit has an external manifestation in being of a common purpose together. And that common purpose is to glorify Christ. It is to glorify Christ. I won't take you there, but there are others. If you get my notes, you can find the others. You can track them down on your own. The outward expression of unity is a demonstration of the power of the gospel through a changed life. Conversely, conversely, a lack of unity within a local church demonstrates worldliness and unbelief. For that, we are indebted to Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, the most dysfunctional church of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Look over to chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. Some translations say carnal. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? For one says, I am of of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos. Are you not mere men? In other words, the church at Corinth externally has 
separated from one another into a, into a personality cult in which they are claiming the various leaders and saying that we are the followers of them. This is a distortion of the gospel. In fact, this is anti-gospel. It is a demonstration of carnality, a demonstration of worldliness, a demonstration of unbelief. It contradicts the spiritual reality. They are one in the spirit, and that's Paul's argument through this book. You are one in the spirit, but you are living as though you are not. Again, in the same letter, chapter 12, verse 25. Paul's still dealing with division in the church all the way through this letter. He says, so so there, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And then maybe one more. We'll go to James, James chapter 4. And beginning in verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What is the source of the quarrels among the local congregation that James is writing to? It is their selfishness. It is their desire to, to, to satisfy their own needs, their own wants, their own lusts, without thought or reference to the needs or desires of others. Sin divides people. Sin divides people. Because sin is inherently self-focused. So a lack of external unity within a body is a anti-gospel message. It is a contradiction of the Spirit's work. That's why unity is so important. Question. Is unity primarily a local issue? Is unity primarily a local issue? I think you probably could answer it now, having heard everything I've said so far. It is a reality, and I want to make sure I say this. It is a reality that all genuine Christians throughout the entire church age are members of and make up the body of Christ. It is called the universal church. It is referenced in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, where it's called the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. There is this reality. There is one body of Christ and We are all, as followers of Christ, placed into the one body and part of the universal church. All true Christians share the common unity of the Spirit and are brothers and sisters, right, in the family of God. And there are all kinds of siblings that you've got out there that you've never met. You will meet them someday in the kingdom. What am I going to do when the kingdom gets here? Well, there's lots of things you can do, but one of which is you can like meet all your relations, right? All your brothers and sisters through the ages that you have never met. And it's interesting, this, um, this 
commonality, this, this, this uh, familial relationship as being part of the, of the family of God or the body of Christ uh, means that wherever you go in the world, when you meet a follower of Christ, you have immediate connection. You have immediate fellowship. I mean, Art and Kim, right? They just testified to that. They, they went to the other side of the world and met people whose name originally means man-eater, okay, which is in and of itself something to really contemplate. And yet they had such close Christian fellowship. It wasn't about shared, you know, memories and, and common experiences and, and allegiances to sports teams or, or common food that you ate. or I mean, none of those things. It was the work of the Spirit in making you one in the body of Christ. So there is that incredible reality. And if you travel, if you've ever traveled, you understand what I'm talking about. You can fly across the country. You can fly across the world. You can go to another city. And when you are among the believers, you know there is a connection there. Even if you can't speak the same language, there's still a connection there. So that is a profound spiritual reality. And so there is a universal aspect to this, very, very much. But, and here's the interesting thing. There, the local reality is the greater emphasis of the New Testament. The universal reality, absolutely true. But the vast majority of New Testament instruction about unity concerns local churches, local fellowships, local, we call them bodies, right? Embodiments of Christ in a place here, Upland, California. That's the issues that is normally dealt with in the New Testament. And that's exactly when we're here in Ephesians, right? Chapter 4. Just let your eye flick back there. Where he says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. And, and he will talk about humility and gentleness and patience and tolerance and long-suffering and all those sorts of things. Listen, I don't need to be patient with people I'll never meet. I don't have to be long-suffering with someone who's never going to provoke me. And when I meet them in glory someday, all that stuff's behind us. This is about local life together. I need to be patient with you. And you need to be patient with me because I provoke you. Right? Yeah, you gotta, you got to forbear with me, and i got to forbear with you. So it's about the local fellowship that the primary emphasis of the New Testament lies. And this is important, very, very important. Is unity primarily a local issue? Answer, yes, it is. It is primarily a local issue. And... and Occasionally, you'll hear people sort of lament the division among Christians. They'll say, oh, Christians, we're so divided from each other. And, and often that lament uh, includes the idea that, that our Christian witness to the world is, is somehow inhibited because of divisions that exist within, you know, Christendom at large. And when I hear those things, I, I, I'm... 
I'm cautious when I hear that. And, and why I'm cautious is because I think frequently what lies behind that is, is they've kind of mixed up institutional unity with the spiritual unity of the New Testament and its primary emphasis on local congregations. A week or so ago, I, I watched this TV special uh, in celebration, I guess you'd say, of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And um, this, this particular special, I wouldn't recommend. So I'm not going to tell you what it is. <laughs> uh, and the reason I wouldn't recommend it is because the recurring theme through this whole um, television program, where they had all kinds of people they were interviewing and, and so forth, um, the primary sort of theme that ran through this in the background was that the, that the whole Reformation was basically one unfortunate mistake. In other words, that, that uh, in fact, they, uh, one Roman Catholic bishop that they, um, archbishop that they interviewed, uh, voiced this uh, in really incredible idea. He, he said he thought that if Luther could have been at the Council of Trent and just had a chance to explain himself, answer questions, and so forth, that maybe the Reformation, you know, really wouldn't have happened. And I pushed pause. I said, if Luther had showed up at the Council of Trent, They'd have burned him at the stake. I mean, the issues were so big, so deep, so profound. The Reformation was not the result of some misunderstanding between a few people who were hotheads. The Reformation gets to the very core of the issue of how is one made right with God. And you cannot have and do not have unity with someone who gets that question wrong. There is no unity because there is no salvation. And when there is no salvation, there is no spirit of unity within. Now, I will agree. I will agree that there are many institutional sins that are a blight on the gospel. Competition between local churches being one of them. Stealing sheep, to use a sort of pastoral term for it. Enticing believers to leave their local fellowship to come and join another one because, wow, we got a kicking program here. You need to come here. That's shameful. Shameful. It's also shameful to to enter into ad hominem attacks on other Christians, some of whom's theology you don't agree with. Perhaps their theology is quite wrong in certain areas. And it is a blight on the gospel to speak ill of a brother and a sister in that way. And we're all guilty of that sin at one time or another. We've all done it. We've all done it, and that's a shame. It's a shame. But the solution to all of that is not to pretend that real and significant theological differences don't exist and that they're not important and to just somehow reduce external Christian unity to the lowest common denominator, right? I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? I guess that's a doctrinal statement we could all get behind. 
including those who are outside of Christ. Beloved, I'm persuaded that the greatest barrier to gospel fruit in a community is not disunity at the institutional church level. In other words, the greatest barrier to the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Inland Valley is not the fact that there are Presbyterians and Methodists and and Baptists and Bible Church and, and on and on. I don't even think it's the fact that there are First Baptists, Second Baptists, Third Baptists. Right? I don't think that's the great barrier. I think the great barrier to the propagation of the gospel in this inland valley is local fellowships that are at each other's throats. That by their behaviors, by their words, by their lifestyles, they deny the spiritual unity that is ours in Christ. I think that's the bigger obstacle to the gospel. And the reason I believe it's the bigger obstacle to the gospel is because it reflects an unchanged life. This is Paul's concern with the church at Corinth. It's a point he makes over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 4 and following, where he's, he's rebuking them for suing one another, for becoming so crosswise with each other that they are resorting to lawsuits to try to settle their differences. And Paul says, so if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? In other words, are you going to the lawyers to resolve your differences, Christians? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? And Paul will go on to say it's better to be defrauded than to take your dispute to court. What hinders the gospel? Local fellowships whose lives are contradiction to the spiritual unity that is ours in Jesus Christ. I praise God and pray every day for this fellowship. That God would protect, that God would guard my heart, my mouth, from saying or doing or thinking things that would attack the spiritual reality of our oneness in Christ. God has done some amazing things in and through Foothill. It could all get blown aside if we start getting after one another about our own personal preferences. May God grant us As we will see, patience, humility, long-suffering with one another so that we might work hard to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Welcome into membership. Welcome into membership. It's a wonderful and glorious display of the unity of the local body of Christ here. Let's pray. Father... We thank you that 
that true unity, the deepest level, is not dependent upon us. Our Father is such a precious jewel. We are incapable of handling. We would drop it and shatter it. We thank you, your spirit preserves it. And in spite of our sin and our failings and shortcomings, in spite of the number of times we wound one another, we're still one. At the end of the day, we're still part of the same family, still part of the same local, localized body, still have the glorious future to look forward to, the kingdom with our brothers and sisters. But our Father, we have a role to play in all of this. In light of the theological reality of what Christ has done, work of your spirit, your predestinating love, we have a role to play. And that role is to preserve externally what you have created everlastingly. We have a role to play in not subverting the message of the gospel through our own petty wants and dislikes, our thin-skinned that's offended so easily, our oafish behavior that offends others, our selfishness that turns inwardly so often and seeks our own rather than how to give. Oh, Lord, I thank you for your grace at Foothill. Thank you that you have protected and preserved us in great measure for many of the terrible things that have fallen upon local churches. We do not take it for granted. Pray, our Father, for your continued protection. We pray, our Father, for humility. We pray, our Father, that we would bring our thinking in line with yours through your word. Pray, our Father, that we would love more fully, more perfectly, more deeply. That we would seek to serve and not be served. That we would see the model of Christ who did not clutch at his glory, did not cling to his glory, but humbled himself by becoming a servant, dying to make us one. O oh Lord, as we embark on these studies together in these next weeks, give us ears to hear. Help us, Father, to, to be listening and, and So your spirit would just impress upon us the particular area where we are offensive to you, to to each other. Help us to value unity like you value unity. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.